I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers that will help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date on what's going on in the literary world. Before I get to today's episode, I'd like to talk a little bit about just what's going on at Just the Right Book podcast. So we have finished season one. There have been 72 episodes. We've gotten absolutely wonderful reviews and comments from all of you. We're going to be taking a short hiatus, and we're going to work on some more great episodes. But here's what I'd love uh, for you to do. We want to, of course, be responsive to all of you that are our listeners. So what we've done is posted a survey on our website, bookpodcast.com, and we'd love to hear what you want to have on our show. What do you like? What don't you like? Do you like the author interviews? Do you want them longer? Do you want them shorter? Do you want more book recommendations, less book recommendations? Do you want to hear about new releases? Just click on the survey at the top of the page and let us know what you're thinking. I really want to thank the thousands and thousands of you that have listened to us over season one, and I can't wait to have more conversations with all of you listening in season two. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with James Foreman Jr. in our New Haven studios to talk about his latest riveting book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Last week, we released part one of my conversation with James, where we explored the intricacies of political activism and the role it plays today. We also discussed the current gun debate, the decriminalization of marijuana, and James's father, who is a civil rights leader, James Foreman Sr. If you haven't listened to that podcast yet, I encourage you to go back and listen. Now, let's get to part two of my conversation with James. One of the things that surprises me, you know, here here's a um, a quote that that guides me when I think about this, and it's Frederick Douglass's, which is, "It is easier to raise a good child than to fix a broken man." Mm. And so my background is in finance mm. before I was a bookseller, and so I think of it: if you can't convince anybody based on just the the um, responsibility we have as a citizen to make sure that everyone in our country has access to the same quality resources. It's an economic decision, right? A dollar now, a dollar now in all the services that low-income families need will return eight, if not $80. I mean, there's actually been studies done in yes, Chicago and in Michigan that, that you couldn't get a better return for your money than making sure that you're taking a kid from zero to five in the first place and six, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade and making sure that they've got access Yet why is it so difficult to get that to get that simple message through? I I just don't get it. Well, I think it's I think it's two reasons. I think one is that it's very hard to get people to focus on children who are outside of their family, their neighborhood, mm-hmm. their community, right? So it's this notion that, well, that's some, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Different. Some right. of and kid, different. Different. Someone right. different. And then here's where the difference kicks in. 
So I think that as in this country, we have not adequately grappled with the legacy of slavery. And in particular, and this is how it's connected directly to your question, is that if you think about the stereotypes and the kind of lies that you have to tell yourself as a society to justify slavery, <laughs> those lies include things like, well, those people are not normal. Right. And they don't. And, and in particular, they don't care about education. Right. So you're trying to justify yourself why it is that you would deny and make it illegal for people to learn to read. Right. These other who are clearly human beings. Well, they don't actually care about education. They don't want to read. That's why I'm not an immoral person if I deny them the ability to learn that. Well, that kind of idea, right, that's just one example. But that idea becomes embedded in our psyches. It becomes a stereotype, right? And then that crosses generations. Yeah. So that, that doesn't go away. Like, we had slavery in this country for longer than we haven't. Right. Yeah. Right. So just think about that from 1619 to the Civil War Hmm. is longer than from the Civil War till now. And that's not even talking about Jim Crow. That's just slavery. Yeah. Right. You factor in Jim Crow, then basically for 80 percent of the country's history, we've had we've had either slavery or Jim Crow. Right. You know, we, we don't lose those beliefs as a as a as a people, as a nation that just doesn't disappear you know, overnight. And so I think that those are some of kind of those are like that's the underlying history, which then makes people comfortable, even if they don't say it, kind of thinking it. They might not even know. I mean, I certainly Mm. consider myself as unracist as imaginable. I bet I am. I bet that there are ways that I don't even fathom how I am being racist in some subtle, but that's defining to somebody else in a way that I can't even grasp. And my parents haven't been in this country that long. That's the part that's tough. I mean, if it were just changing all the bad guys, it might seem simpler. I think the problem is that they're good people that are not grasping how this legacy is both imbuing how they see the world, they the white person, but certainly imbuing the way we think of resources being allocated because we say things like, well, you know, they don't really care about their families as much as we do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what I always say, the way we think of immigrants or refugees, more to the point. My parents were refugees, you know, so that we think of those people over there in those Syrian refugee camps as somehow not like your mom or dad or me and my children because, well, they probably just don't because that's the way I protect myself from feeling absolutely leveled by the fact that I'm not doing anything to stop that. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, and I think that if you look at, you know, the all the research on implicit bias, right, and if anybody has any questions about this, they can Google implicit association test and then they can take one of those The tests, Harvard one, the right? Harvard, yeah, the Harvard I one. just took it. Yeah. I and, was fascinated by it. And just more to your point, I mean, black people share these biases. Yeah. We're African-Americans. Well, half of that is American. <laughs> and as Americans, we consume the same media. We're a part of this country. And if you look at um, black people who, t- uh, for example, you know, uh, will make associations between blacks and violence, right? That's It's a less entrenched uh, stereotype within black test takers, but it's still there. 
mm. just to a somewhat lesser degree. So, yeah, it's this is, you know, it's it's absolutely a problem that I think is rooted in slavery. And until we start talking about it and start confronting it and get to a point where people can be honest and, and not just be embarrassed about saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I took the test. I'm, I'm speaking about myself right now. I, James Foreman, took the test. And I, I remember I called this when it was first came out. I heard about him. This is like 10 years ago. And I knew a, co- a friend of mine from college had been one of the first researchers to help develop it. And I took it and it showed that I had, you know, I associated darker faces more quickly with an act of violence on when I'm taking this test. And I called my friend who's now a colleague here at Yale and I was t- utterly freaked out. And she said, well, that's what we would have expected to find. Yeah. Um, so, you know, calm down. Uh, and but you but we've got to be willing to have some of these conversations before we're going to get anywhere. So let me ask sort of a multi-layered question in response to that. One is, when I read your book, one of the worries I had, and I don't know, I didn't see any of this, but I wondered if one of the criticisms of it could be that you're letting whites off the hook um, in the way you're telling this story. Have, Have there been conversations or criticism of the book in that way? I've been asked that question. So nobody has has written a review that has said that. I didn't find one. I didn't find one. The reviews have typically said something like, you may be worried that this book in taking this approach is minimizing the role of racism, but it's not. And then they go on to explain why it's not. So I think if you take like one sentence or two sentences or, or even a paragraph and go no deeper, you might kind of have that fear, have that reaction. But everybody who's actually read the book um, sees that I'm very, very upfront about all of the ways in which uh, historical racism, institutionalized racism, structured the options that were available to the people that I'm writing about. So I'm writing about African-American decision makers and, and black communities and I'm showing the choices that they made, but I'm also showing all the ways in which those choices were constrained, right? Mm-hmm. All the ways in which yeah. they didn't have all the options available to them that they wanted, all the ways in which they go to the federal government and they say, you know, fight segregation, right? And and create equal access to housing and bring us better schools. And they get rejected right. Right, for these reasons that we're talking about. And so I make it clear when you look at the book that I'm writing against a background of a system of a, of a system and also though a literature right there are there's an incredible body now of literature, whether it's The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson or Between the World and Me by ta Coates or the hundred other books that aren't as famous as those three books, but which have started have have exposed all of the different ways in which racism and uh, individual actions and also institutionalized race, racism have helped to create the system that we now have. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, I want to add an additional layer that here there's something else on top you need to know all that and there's something else you should know on top of that here's what i have to say and so i think that and and when you read the book it's very clear yeah. that that's what i'm doing um and so i think that people have worried that that might um have been 
kind of an argument that I was making that somehow, well, racism, you know, that's not important. But I say in the book and in conversations like this, you know, just the opposite. Yeah. And I think it's important for our listeners who may not have read the book yet, but they will after our conversation because they'll realize they need to, to understand that the book is very full-throated that way. It doesn't separate the problems. It incorporates the two dimensions. So one of the one of the stories that you tell towards the end of the book that I haven't been able to get out of my head, and I feel like her story represents so many threads mm. of what you talk about in the book and what this conversation has been about. So her name was Tasha Willis, Mm -hmm. and she was a client of yours when you were a public defender. Share with us her story as it related to your being her public defender. Yeah. So um, Ms. Willis was, uh, and I should say I changed the names of all of my clients, for, of course, to protect their privacy. So they're actual stories with different names attached. But Ms. Willis... Um, was facing uh, charges of uh, drug distribution. And she was charged with selling basically $10 worth of heroin. And she was herself an addict. And so like a lot of addicts, she helped to get money by selling small amounts of drugs. The scene you know, that I lay out in the book is where we're meeting in her house. So she's on release pending trial and... Where she's lucky already. Yes, that's right. Right. That's right. I mean, she's lucky given our system. It would be, to me, this should be normal and typical. But it's not. But no, you're right. That's right. That's a good point to make. And so we're talking about what to do. And she is telling me that she wants a plea offer. And the problem that I'm trying to tell her is that I've met with the prosecutor and I've asked for a plea offer. And the best plea offer I can get is five years, which to Ms. Willis and to me is an extraordinary amount of time. But the maximum that she was actually facing under I law found this shocking. was 60 years. 60 years for selling $10 of heroin. That's right. That was the statutory maximum. Now, mo- there's no judge that I knew in the courthouse that would have given that, but a judge could have. They could and have had a bad day. That's right. That's right. And it's because it was a second offense. So she had it's for 30 years for your first offense, which is, you know, insane. Right. And then, you know, 60 for the second offense. And so when I met with the prosecutor, the case that I was trying to make to her was I was telling her about Ms. Willis's background and about the fact that she had worked in the post office and she had become injured in the course of her job and she had become addicted over time to pain medications. And then she had, as you know, is a well-known story. I mean, she's hardly the only person this has happened to, uh, uh, started using harder drugs, turned to heroin, and at this point had become, was a heroin addict. And the prosecutor's position was well, she's already had a chance in a drug treatment program because she had previously been in a program and had not succeeded. And that answer to me was such a common one. Well, you know, they've already had a chance at a program. Now, every shred of research that everybody has done and, and life experiences of people tells you that when you're an addict, you typically, many people, most people need multiple Attempts, attempts before they actually overcome their addiction. And, you know, this is such a well-known point that I hadn't even entered the prosecutor's office with, like, literature on it because I thought, well, this is common sense. 
But her position was, look, she's had a chance and we need to hold these beds available for people that haven't had a chance before. And when I said to her, I really, I I lost my cool in the conversation, which isn't a good thing to do because that's not effective negotiation. (laughs) But, you know, my voice raised and I started lecturing her and saying, well, how come, you know, we say that, well, drug treatment didn't work and so we're never going to try that again. But with prison, we'll try it over and over and over again, no matter how much it's been shown to fail. And, you know, at that point, kind of the conversation ended. Um, And so I couldn't get the deal. I couldn't get a better deal. I couldn't get a better deal than the one that she was offering. Um, And eventually, you know, we go to court and really through kind of luck of the draw that day, I don't know what happened. A police officer didn't show up. The case ends up getting dismissed. And so in a way, again, it's a victory. But to me, the tragedy of the story is that when we when I left Ms. Willis in the courthouse that day, that day that she even came to court, I was a little wondering if she was even under the influence on that day. I couldn't quite tell, but she didn't seem quite right to me. And when the case was dismissed and I was saying goodbye to her, she said, you know, don't worry, Mr. Foreman, I'm going to go get into treatment. And I knew that she meant it then, but I also knew that there was a nine-month waiting list for drug treatment programs for poor people like her. If she had walked over to the program that day, she would have been given a date for nine months in the future. And there was no way she was coming back in nine months. So my frustration is with a system that would be so ready to impose Right. No judge has ever told me, well, we don't have space in the jail. We don't have space in the prison, so we can't lock them up. But the city says, as a matter of course, well, we don't have space in the treatment program. You have to wait nine months. And that to me seems like such a radically, you know, really just a morally bankrupt. And as you said before, economically inefficient um, approach um, that it just it just devastates me to this day. Um, And I wanted to tell her story in the book because I feel like it's important. You know, a lot of books in the criminal justice system about the criminal justice system, they don't show like the everyday, the mundane. It's like, well, the person gets life without parole, you know, and that's true and that happens. And but there's so many like lower level sort of almost daily kind of injustices like this one that go unnoticed, that go undiscussed and but that really gut people's lives. And so I felt like I felt like telling that story was important. And it did put you in the not only in her shoes and your shoes, but it put you in the system. Because the other thing that I think you do so well is there's this kind of other stereotype that's developed as the public defender mm. is sort of a beleaguered, indifferent slave to the process. And, you know, he's treating his clients as numbers. And you show just how wrong that that perception is. And, you know, as counterweight to Miss Willis's story, I hope everyone does pick up the book because there's a story of a young man, Dante, who's a teenager, who's been totally deserted by everything we're talking about, and yet how there was a way. There was a way that you found and the court found and then the system found to give him another chance. So everyone, we'll we'll leave it as a mystery that they have to read the book to learn about. Uh, Let me ask you this last question, which I like to ask all our authors is, what's the book that changed your life, James? Hmm. 
I think the book that changed my life was a book by Deborah Meyer called The Power of Their Ideas. And Deborah Meyer was a a teacher, an educator, the founder of a school in New York City called Central Park East School. And she wrote this book about her experience founding this alternative school. It was a school where students were encouraged to ask questions and uh, kind of the rote memorization approach to education was uh, she really avoided and, and students were encouraged to take ownership of their learning and and to try to write produce final projects instead of, you know, answering, you know, fill in the bubble tests. And I read the book. The reason why I changed my life is that I read the book when I was a public defender operating in juvenile court, frustrated with the lack of educational options for my clients. And to read a book about somebody who started a school and to go inside that story and to to imagine, you know, you could create in a space. She was working in East Harlem, right, very poor part of New York City. You could try to create something beautiful and meaningful that young people led mm. in really difficult circumstances. And so seeing her story made me think maybe we could do it. Yeah. Well, James... I am just so grateful you've written the book, and I know, I mean, it's already out in paperback. It's been out for a little bit over a year that it is creating the template for the conversation that we need to be having. To me, this is one of the most important things we need to think about in our country if we're going to continue to be a strong free country. So, James Foreman, thank you very much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to James Foreman Jr. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having the opportunity to speak with him. Make sure to pick up a copy of his book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, which is out now. And please take the time to complete our survey on bookpodcast.com and let us know what you want more of or less of for season two. I want to also take a moment to thank all of our loyal listeners. It has been such fun to think of the thousands and thousands of you that have been listening and the hundreds of you that have written to us. And I look forward to more conversations with all of you. Season two of Just the Right Book podcast will return with new episodes in May. But to celebrate the recent paperback release of a few of our favorite authors, we will be revisiting conversations with Elizabeth Straub, Michael Conley, and Daphne Merkin for the remainder of April. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. Or send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.